0: Listener production. Hey, Just
1: next. Hello. This is Jacob and Rosie, and we've just recently arrived in South Africa to live our safari dreams.
0: Oh, well, yes, I'm hiding from the sun, but Jacob's living his dream.
1: <laughs> sure am. Uh, and so we're going to enjoy a little bit of a break from recording, but we're not going to leave you high and dry. Rosie? What are we going to be doing instead?
0: We are going to bring you another edition of JTG Greatest Hits. Mm -hmm. You guys loved when we brought back the Trashman sinking episode as a Greatest Hits special. And like I said in that one, we've got such a big back catalogue now because we're like Madonna (laughs) um, of really cool stories that if you've been listening from the start, it might have been ages since you've heard one of them Mm -hmm. and forgotten about it. I have even forgotten that I've recorded. (laughs) Or if you're new, you might not have gone back that far. You might have missed some really good ones. So we're going to be occasionally doing greatest hits drops to uh, remind you of some... A JTG classic. Yes. Greatest hits.
1: And maybe sometimes to sort of bring your attention to what we consider to be a bit of an unsung hero. Yeah. And we think our live shows are something that some of you have slept on. So um, we've put together a bit of a compilation of some of our favourite stories that we've told during our live shows. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, They're shorter because at the live shows, as you guys know, we are ridiculous and obnoxious and we just use it as an excuse to, live out all our high school talent show dreams. Mm. So there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of numbers, there's a lot of other things, and then we're like, oh wait, uh, we have to tell a story. (laughs) So We do tell a story each at the live shows, and they're about, I'd say about 15 minutes-ish each. Um, So, um, yeah, that's what's going to play now. Greatest hits, best of live shows. If you love these, jump in the DMs and uh, tell us where you want us to go, because we are sort of in the tentative early process of planning the next two mm-hmm, which first. I would like to um, align with places that have poo related tourist spots.
1: <sighs> Yay
0: <laughs> <laughs> So um, here you go, greatest hits, JTG, greatest hits, best of the live shows. We will get back to South Africa. Elon hunting. Why do I do it like Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't know? know.
2: I'm not
0: good at it, am I? (laughs) Um, But make sure you tune in for breaking news because we are recording breaking news while we're here. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Recorded
2: in front of a live studio audience.
1: Should we get into some stories?
2: Yeah.
1: Okay, so... I'm going to tell you a story about eight nuns who went completely rogue in 1990. They sold their convent and used the money to go on a massive spending spree, and then they <laughs> bought themselves a castle in the south of France and moved there. Yes! <laughs> Some of you might have heard just that bit of information when it was sort of doing the rounds on social media not that long ago. There is more to this story, and it was really fun to investigate. So let's get into it after I... Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Have a sip of my pure blonde. Oh, my
0: God. Oh.
1: It's fine. More where that came from. Actually, Taylor, could I get an ice bucket, please?
0: A single beer-sized ice bucket. Just for bucket. this one.
1: Thank you. We forgot that. So, the story starts in Bruges in the late 1980s. Thank you, Taylor. Um, it's on our
0: rider. <laughs> single beer-sized only.
1: Appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, tay Woo!
2: So, she's
1: wonderful. We adore her. Yep. Um, anyone been to Bruges in Belgium? Give us a woo. Yep. Gorgeous city in Belgium. Very scenic. Lots of very old buildings. And one of these very old, very valuable buildings was a convent. It had been built in the 1500s and naturally it was home to a group of nuns. These nuns were part of the Order of St. Clair, which is most commonly known as the Poor Clares. And, Aww. yeah. The Poor Clares have to live a very poverty-stricken lifestyle. They are the OG nuns. The Poor Clares were the first ever order of nuns in all of Christianity.
0: Is that like... So they basically, is this like literally spending all day on hard wooden boards on your knees? Praying, scrubbing floors, praying, scrubbing floors,
1: have some gruel, yeah, that kind of lifestyle. Soupy
0: gruel and then oh, Mm Yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, Not a whole lot of fun. They, They take these very, very serious vows and they have a super strict set of rules and it all comes down to living in poverty and... Chastity, so they aren't allowed to have sex, mm-hmm. and obedience. They've got to follow all these rules that of course have been made up by
0: men. Why do the women Because in Catholicism the mm. priests live in like opulent castle home wearing like, head to toe Prada? Yeah, yeah. why yeah. do they wear Prada? Yes. Why do the nuns have to have nothing? Because gender dynamics. <gasps> God. Gender. Like most of the stories we tell. I knew it. Yes.
1: And so they're super isolated from the outside world. They rarely ever get to leave their convent at all. And one of their main rules is they are not allowed to own any property because they have to be so poor and they can only accept donations from the community. They're not allowed to work Mm. and they're never allowed to enjoy any sort of luxury. That's considered a sin. So it's not a super appealing lifestyle for most of us. Mm. And it's not surprising that throughout the 1900s, fewer and fewer women were choosing to put their hand up and say, I'd like to become a Paul Claire. Mm. And then enrollment really took a dip in the 60s and then the 70s when women were getting a bit more independence and a bit more equality in society. And then by the time the late 80s rolled around, they were at an all-time low of new nuns coming into the system. And so the church had to be really strategic about where they were going to place new nuns when they came on board, which was right. essentially deciding which convents were going to get new blood and survive into the future and which convents were going to be left to slowly die out.
0: This is like the plot of Act. I know.
1: I feel like this has to have inspired it somehow.
0: Maggie Smith was, like, in charge of this convent that wasn't doing well and then in came Whoopi and made them a choir and the Pope came and they were saved. Yes.
1: <laughs> and honestly, I believe that there is something in this for Sister Act 3. Yes. I really think they'll be able to Which use some of these said plot points.
0: Which a thing. It's happening. Yeah, I yeah, read yeah. the other day. Yeah, it's yeah. going
1: ahead on Disney. Anywho... Every convent relies, including Maggie Smith's convent, yeah. relies on having new nuns coming through so that they can take care of the older nuns as they age. Yeah. And in Bruges, the mother superior there, Sister Anna, found out that the bishop had decided that her convent would not be receiving any new nuns. And when was this, the 80s? Uh, yeah, mid okay. to late 80s. Yeah. Um, So they'd pretty much just been marked as disposable.
0: Your convent's going out of business. That's right. And
1: she was pissed because there were only eight nuns left (gasps) in her convent. She was the youngest of all of them and she was already 61 (gasps) years old. The oldest in that convent was Sister Agnes. Bless her, she was 93 years old. Deaf, blind and couldn't walk.
0: There's a character like that It's Sister Act. Yeah, right. (laughs) Who needs Maggie Smith to feed her the sausage? (laughs) Oh, my God! So much
1: of this has to have inspired that, for sure. Um, So, yeah, Sister Anna was staring at the reality of what her life was going to be like nursing these older women and then there'd be no one to look after her when she got to that point in her life. So she felt like she'd been scammed.
0: But you have been (laughs) scammed. She has been scammed. Because that's basically like we made you give up everything, you devote your life to us. Oh, Mm -hmm. and by the way, when you hit old age... Good luck to you. We're not taking care
1: of you anymore. Yeah. Her only option was going to be to move to a different convent, but she really didn't want to do that. And she thought the treatment had been completely unfair. Like you say, she'd given everything up. Literally, she'd given all of her belongings to the church when she first enrolled. And anything that she'd inherited along the way from her family, she'd had to hand over to to, the church as well. They're not allowed to keep anything at all.
0: Okay. Oh, was that that was a cult getting mad at me that just happened
1: religion plus time equals
0: cult any Scientologist no, cult plus time in equals religion. the room I'm
1: scared oh, don't say that word um, yeah so she was not happy and yeah. she decided she wasn't having it she started investigating some other options for what she could yes. do to salvage yeah. the rest of her life and she started having some chats with a guy called Ronnie Crabb, who was the groundskeeper at the convent. He was a 35-year-old guy, had a bit of street smarts about him, and so she started asking him for some advice. Like, how might maybe someone go about selling some of the priceless antiques and yes. Renaissance artworks that are just lying around this big convent? And he was like, oh, I gotcha. I can help you out, don't you worry. I know else? a guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like Yeah, totally. And he helped set up bank accounts for her and he started giving her some good investment tips, told her to invest in racehorses, so she bought a couple of racehorses. (laughs) Told her to invest in a farm, so she bought up a farm.
0: Oh, my God. And let me guess, though, also, like, the priest's, Just do not take any notice of them so they're not even noticing that Mm -hmm. she's, yeah, they don't even think about the nuns. No, 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 Yeah,
1: They're rarely making visits out into the regions, yeah. We've both worked in retail. I think of the bishop as, like, the regional manager. Oh, yes! Yes! They're
2: they're not
1: necessarily great at their job, but they love the status and they very rarely, you know, set foot, deign to step foot Mm -mm -mm. into the store and see what's going on so the kids can kind of run amok. Do
0: what they do. Yeah, Yeah,
1: gotcha. Um,
0: yeah, so, my cotton on days to a T. Right? Yep. Yeah.
1: Right, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so this went on for about 18 months in secret, <gasps> her selling off artworks and antiques and then investing the money. And while she was doing that, she was gradually planting the seed in the minds of all the other nuns that it was time to say goodbye to the convent. Bit by bit, she got them more and more fired up about how they'd been mistreated because they had dedicated their lives to this church, this system that all followed these miserable rules and lived the same boring routine every single day. And they've had to sort of shiver through these brutal winters in Bruges in this giant stone building that was just impossible to heat. So they deserved, it was kind of easy in the end to convince them they deserved a really comfortable retirement in a sunny, warm place. So she managed to get them all on board with minimal effort. It was all for none, none for all. (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: Everyone was was down with the plan. Thank you, thank you. I apologise to some of you who hated that. And Sister Anna told them, oh, look, I have found the perfect place. I'm going to put the deposit down now. And the place she'd chosen was this great big old castle in the south of France. <laughs> An actual castle. Yes, it was described by some as a dilapidated castle, but it's a castle nonetheless. It's
0: a, a, she had sold, she'd sneakily sold enough stuff yep. to buy a castle. To
1: put down a deposit. Okay. Now, it was at the point where she needed to pay off the rest of that castle. And Uh in order to do that, she was going to have to sell the entire convent. (gasps) She knew there was a legal loophole that was going to make that possible because she was very clever and she'd done her research. Now, just to explain how she did this, I'm going to try to use some legal terms that I'm sure I do not understand. Trust me, I don't need or want corrections from any of (laughs) you.
2: It's just the gist.
1: So the convent was set up as an independent nonprofit. Yeah, and like any other nonprofit, it has these bylaws that are controlled by the members. Mm -hmm. And those members were the sisters. And the sisters all just had to unanimously agree to change the bylaws. And in this case, they changed them to say that they were allowed to sell the convent and keep all the money for themselves (laughs) without permission from the Vatican. It was really pretty simple. So that's what they went ahead Mm -hmm. and did. And of course, Ronnie was helping them every step of the way.
0: love Ronnie. He managed
1: to help them get a seller's agent and put the... uh, What's it called, Combin, on the market?
0: See, not all men.
1: Right. (laughs) Things don't go so well for Ronnie Boe, sadly. Um, Oh, no. They managed to find a very eager buyer. And then by the time the bishop even found out about this, the deal was done. This major property development (laughs) company had come along and said, yep, we'll take it. Here's your money. It was the equivalent of four and a half million Australian dollars in today's money. Go,
0: sister. Anna! Told
1: you it was a valuable building. It was actually worth a lot more. They got a bargain, but, mm. like, they were keen to just sell quickly. Yeah. Um, so the development company, they paid in full before the ink was even dry on the contract. The seven youngest nuns piled into the back of this giant tacky limousine with a full bar in the back of it. And off they shot to the south of France with Sister Agnes following behind in an ambulance. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh. The greatest image.
0: They took Agnes. Yes. (laughs) No
1: nun gets left behind.
0: Oh my God! I hope it was one of those pink Hummer limos. (laughs) You know that? I bet it was. Oh mwah, chef's kiss mwah.
1: That's what I like to fantasise. Yeah, so they got to their castle and they started making themselves at home and they started to enjoy freedom that they hadn't enjoyed for decades or, for some of them, freedom that they hadn't experienced ever in their lives. And I like to picture it being very much like what Brittany's experiencing yes. at the moment since her emancipation. Just
0: post naked photos, yes. guys. Just get it on with your sex idiot. Hang out at the beach. Yes. Oh,
1: yes. I picture them just sun-baking topless in the backyard, yes. guzzling rosé, perving on the pool boys,
0: yes. snorting
1: cocaine off the pool
0: boys. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Just doing lines all day. Yes.
1: And Ronnie kept helping them as well with their money. So he helped them buy, in the end, a total of 11 racehorses. <laughs> He also helped them buy six luxury cars and three of the ladies decided they wanted to get cute matching Mercedes. <laughs> Top of the line, the ones that had car phones in them and TVs in oh the back God. of the seat. Yeah, None of them could drive, by the way. <laughs> they were purely ornamental. The nuns were like, it's our money and it's what we want. So Ronnie was like, it shall be yours, no problem. Um, and I wish that I could say that this is the end of the story and they all lived happily ever after in that castle. But there are men with egos in this story and so this is not where it ends.
0: Why are men?
1: But just hang on to that image for a moment of how happy they were to be completely free. Mm. And now I have to tell you that meanwhile, back in Belgium, of course, the bishop lawyered up with Vatican attorneys immediately and tried to pressure the government to void the sale completely. Luckily, that didn't work because there was no denying... What they had done was legal. Yeah, they did they the legal loophole thing. They hadn't actually broken law. Yeah, yeah, they
0: outsmarted you,
1: dummy. Mm-hmm. That's what hurt the most, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, so then he offered to buy the convent back for the price the developers had paid, and they were like, no, thanks. We like it. We're going to keep it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so then he said, all right, fine. Well, if we can't have the convent back, can we please just have all the priceless artefacts and heirlooms and artworks <laughs> from inside? And the new owners were sort of like not really any artworks to speak of in here. You can come have a look and see if there's anything you want to take with you. Sure enough, <laughs> what was left that Sister Anna hadn't yet sold, the nuns had taken with them to decorate their new castle. Yes! How is this
2: not a
1: movie? I'm going to get on that, oh, okay. right? Yeah, we have to. Um, so... The church, everyone involved, all the way up to the Pope, they were very deeply triggered. And it wasn't just that they were angry about the valuable property they'd lost, they were also deeply embarrassed by mm. what was going on, especially because just before this happened, about 40 kilometres away from Bruges in a place called Newport, at another old, Claire, poor Claire, sorry, convent, the Mother Superior had gone rogue and turned half of her convent into a luxury boutique hotel.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I love that there are just all these shitty, shitty men <laughs> not thinking that women are smart enough to do anything. And meanwhile, right under your effing yep. noses,
1: uh-huh.
0: F you guys. Yes! So,
1: quick sidebar on how this happened. So, the mother superior involved, her name was Sister Maria. She was having the same problem as Sister Anna. She only had three nuns left in her convent and she knew she wasn't going to be getting any more and so she decided to do what she had to do. She put herself first. Mm. She got really proactive. Get it, girl. And she started setting herself up for a comfortable retirement. So in the mid-1980s, she started making and selling um, communion wafers, Ah cannibal crackers for entrepreneurial. Yep. And she kept all the money rather than giving it to the church. And then she started doing like special appearances at events and functions, like (laughs)
0: Like just
1: like a kid's party
0: plan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) like, I don't know, emceeing weddings or something. I don't know. That's
0: I, I don't smart, know. Though. Right?
1: And she was making decent coins. She made enough money to buy herself this cute little sports car. And then she <laughs> developed a taste for um, expensive cigars. So, oh like, God, she it. was living it up. And then eventually the church found out the sort of lifestyle mm. she was living. And they were like, oh, no, this will not do. You're demoted. And she was like, no, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm staying. I'm, I'm the mother superior. And yeah. They were like, no, you have to go. You're fired and we're getting rid of you you have to leave. And she was like, no, absolutely not. I'm staying. (laughs) She refused to leave. And then shortly after that, she inherited $400,000 from her uncle when he died. And she decided that she was going to buy half the convent and turn it into a hotel. And that was possible thanks to bylaws because she was able to essentially sell half the convent to herself.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Had a quick reno done, put in a pool, put in a gym. Every bathroom got pink marble tiles. And she started charging the equivalent of $400 a night for each of the rooms. Love it. So, the Sister Maria hotel debacle had already got a bit of media attention around the world. The church was already pretty humiliated. And then, when the media caught wind of the poor Clares in Bruges selling their convent, the world suddenly became very interested and in I bet Belgian nuns. The
0: Catholic men could not handle this. Oh, they were not The embarrassment,
1: the egos, uh uh-oh. The spotlight was on Belgian Mm -hmm. nuns and what are they going to do next?
0: And it was women that outsmarted us, (laughs) women, yeah.
1: Must have been possessed by a male demon, I'm sure. Yeah, must have
0: been.
1: The newspapers loved this story because the headlines wrote themselves and some of my favourites were, Runaways, Try Nunaways.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes.
1: (laughs) These Roman Catholics are Roman (laughs) South. And actually it's none of your business.
0: Uh, Still none as good as yours though. (laughs)
1: All for none none for all. All for
0: none, none
1: for all. Um, So of course the church did have to address the media and they tried to save face as best they could, which was kind of difficult. The bishop's statement said he just had no idea what could have possessed these women to make this decision I and mean, throw away their careers like this. Um, and he kept saying, all we care about is the nun's well-being. We don't care about the property oh, at please. all. We just really want them to come back home to Belgium where they can be safe under our protection. Oh,
0: yeah,
1: right. Drinking this soup, mm-hmm.
0: kneeling
1: on the wood. Um, and the nuns, of course, were like, you don't care about us at all. These are yeah. lies, lies, Liza Minnelli, lies. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Them as old ladies. Completely,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, it wouldn't have looked good for the church to sort of paint the nuns as villains, yep. though, so they came up with a different strategy so that they could be painted as the victims and started to suggest just lightly that maybe Ronnie was actually a bad guy and that the Ronnie. nuns had been his innocent marks, all except for Sister Anna. They were very clear she was to be excommunicated. She yeah. made her own decisions. All of the rest of them had been
0: taken you know advantage what? of. I bet she had her period. (laughs) No, but right, you know what drives me crazy about that is that, sure, they're trying to save face, but I'm sure there are some priests who actually thought there is no way the women could have come up with this. It had to have been this man. Mm -hmm. The gardener, he's a man, must have been him. Mm -hmm. Had to have been the man who outsmarted us. Couldn't have been the ladies, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, So... They started telling the media they suspected that Ronnie had conned, tricked, swindled the nuns. And so some investigators went to talk to the ladies down in the south of France. So a judge went, some cops went, and a journalist went. And what they found, really not surprising, the girls were having a great time. They were fully aware of the choices they'd made. They felt that they were completely justified in what they'd done. They had no regrets, and no, they hadn't been tricked. No, they hadn't been swindled. So... Mm. Done. Yeah. And also, by the way, when they were there, they saw that Sister Anna, not too concerned about being excommunicated from a church, that she'd already left.
2: Yeah. She wasn't
1: crying too hard yeah. into her rosé. So the nuns had taken full responsibility Uh-oh. of what they'd done. Oh, oh oh.
0: Taxi-ya.
1: They'd taken full responsibility and what they'd done wasn't illegal. So at this point, the church, the bishop, the pope, they all had the opportunity to do what the thing that they preach, the Christian thing, mm. forgive. Just
0: leave them be. Turn
1: the other cheek, right? But apparently when the Pope asked himself, what would Jesus do, the answer he got was, seek vengeance <laughs> through the legal system.
0: Scorched earth. <laughs>
1: Because the Vatican legal team went after Ronnie viciously. And also
0: because the Vatican, when it comes to charging people within their own ranks, really should be going after these nuns who Mm. sold some artworks and not, you know, the pedophiles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You said it. Allegedly. (laughs) Yeah, that's where they should be focusing their efforts. Yeah, it makes
1: sense to me too. Yeah. Um, But no, they went after Ronnie. They accused him of forgery, theft, extortion, fraud, and also physically abusing one of the sisters. No. Completely untrue. Totally trumped up. They put all this pressure on the police and the police arrested him and he spent 39 days in jail before he was able to be released on bail. While he was in jail, the church was running this smear campaign about him saying he's a really dangerous con man. The only reason the nuns won't admit that he schemed them was that they're scared of him because he's this really dangerous guy. And then Ronnie's trials began Mm. and because of that the nuns' accounts had to be frozen so they didn't have any access to any of their cash and they had no idea when or even if they were going to get access to their cash. So the trial was sort of dragging on and on and on and it reached a point where they were like we really don't have a choice we're gonna to have to sell our castle no. in order to get money to live and so they only got to spend about 12 months in their dream home in total before they had to downsize and they ended up moving back to Belgium because that was going to be easiest other family members would be able to help take care of them Sad that that's the way it ended, but that is the truth. Um, Ronnie's charges led to three very lengthy court trials, which took more than five years to resolve. But he
2: didn't do anything. Right?
1: He was finally acquitted in 1996 of all Charges and by then, almost all of the nuns, one by one, had been lured back into the church and were back under control of the bishop. I, well, I know where
0: else to go. Where you know, yeah. when you're that age and you've been in it, they all join when they're like 16 yeah. and you're now like 80. Oh,
1: I'm sure it was scary for them to yeah. go and live this secular life. And you know, the 90s were a crazy time as well, and so
0: none of them stood up for Ronnie? Were they no, all just so under the church's thumb? This was
1: the thing. He, When he finally was acquitted, he was able to talk to the media quite freely. And obviously yeah. he was very scathing when he was talking about the church. He also was really scathing talking about the nuns because he was like, they let me take the fall. Like, yeah. they did not do much to come oh, to my defence at all. Yeah, it seems like they were facing a lot of pressure. Yeah. Um, but still, he just let rip when really? he came out. Yeah, he was like... This person, I'm suing. I'm suing this person. I'm suing this person. By the way, guess who had to pay his legal fees?
0: No, them.
1: The nuns. No! Yes. The Catholic Church was the one who trumped up all those charges against him, but then it was the nuns who ended up having to pay As like the legal a bill. As like
0: penance, of yeah. punishment. Mm-hmm. Get.
1: Doesn't seem fair. Um, Yeah. Anyway, he announced that he was going to be writing a book, and that he would be selling the rights to the story to make a movie. I don't know where that project is sitting, but I really want someone to make it happen, and I want to see Bette Midler as Sister Anna. And
0: Whoopi. Oh yeah, get Whoopi. Bring back Whoopi. But did he ever write the book?
1: No, oh, no, man. he seems to have essentially disappeared. And it does seem a little bit suspicious to me. So he also, never said
0: anything else. He didn't go down in any blaze of glory. He was just like, well, I might write a book, bye.
1: Well, the final thing that he said was, by the way, they're all lesbians. She's <laughs> sleeping with her. She's sleeping with her. These two are exes. Boom, yeah. I'm out of here.
2: <laughs>
1: and everyone was sort of like, um, we sort of assumed. Probably true. Probably you true. Know? I,
0: mean, I can't <laughs>
1: Yeah, so we don't hear any more from him. He'd be in his mid-sixties by now. Yeah, right. So, yeah, yeah,
0: if he was thirty years younger. So, is, if Anna was still alive, she'd she'd be, be ninety-three. Nineties, yeah. ninety-three. She
1: could still be out there somewhere. Haven't been able to find her. Um, but yeah, I, I hope she still thinks fondly of her twelve months living in a castle oh, with her girls. Living it up. Yeah.
0: Oh, sunbathing, topless, doing lines off the pool boy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Heaven. Just picture it again for a moment, everyone. Yeah, that's nice. So that was just the gist of the nuns who went on the run. That was good.
0: I want the movie. At our last live show, I asked the audience to remember a time when they'd been young and in love and an idiot and then I gave just the gist of Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson. Mm. This time, I want you to think about couples who have been told they can't be be together but do it anyway. Star-crossed lovers like Romeo and Juliet or Prince Edward and Wallace Simpson or Oprah and Gail. (laughs) This week, dear gistners, I'm giving you just the gist of Margaret and Peter... A couple who fell in love and had sensual sexual encounters, despite the fact Margaret was just a 23 year old woman and Peter was a dolphin. Strap in. It was 1963. Do we all need a minute? Do we all need a sip of a drink? Let's just all take a gulp, shall we? I don't think I'm ready for this. <sighs> okay. He has no idea. <laughs> I messaged him today and I said, this is going to be a Jacob cannot stop shrieking story.
1: I feel like I should put the mic. Okay, here
0: we go. It was 1963. And Margaret Howe Lovett... Was living on the Caribbean island of St. Thomas. Mm-hmm. She'd always had a fascination with the possibility of humans being able to talk to animals ever since she was a kid. So when she heard about a dolphinarium that had opened on the island, she went there immediately to take a look. Mm-hmm. What is a dolphinarium, you ask? I will tell you. There was this famous neuroscientist in the US at the time called Dr. John Lilly, and for quite a few years, he had been studying dolphins and their brains and their use of language and the way they communicate with each other, and dolphins are famously very intelligent. So Dr. Lilly began to theorise that dolphins could eventually be taught to speak English, and he did a bunch of research. Then he wrote a book called Man and Dolphin, which was published in 1961 and became a massive bestseller, which explained all of his studies so far, and then predicted that one day there would be a dolphin delegate sitting in meetings at the UN, representing the interests of marine life. Now, yes, that does sound a little bit cuckoo, but that was just the part where he predicted what could happen. Um, like the actual study that he had done so far about dolphin communication was pretty groundbreaking and it was actually so bre- groundbreaking that it got the interest of NASA because this was like the early 60s and the possibility of space exploration was, was kind of exploding and it was of huge interest. Like we're only nine years away from um, man landing on the moon at this point. So this was peak NASA time and NASA basically just had unlimited budget to do whatever weird shit they wanted. Um So when humans first started to really look into space in a massive way at this time, they started really worrying about extraterrestrial life, about Mm. aliens coming to get us. So a huge concern for NASA and something that was top of their agenda was figuring out a way to communicate with extraterrestrials when we come across them, which we obviously would soon, like they're probably just over on Mars and we just don't know it yet. Mm. So when the dudes at NASA read Dr. Lilly's book, they were like, okay, okay. This guy is making great strides in figuring out how other species communicate. And you could just take out the word dolphin and put in the word alien and like, bam, like we get how to (laughs) understand how other animals or species talk. And like when we find them on the moon, we'll be able to understand what they're saying based on Dr. Lilly's studies. So NASA gives Dr. Lilly like millions upon millions of dollars to continue his research into interspecies communication Uh through his study of dolphins. They wanted him to focus on how dolphins communicate with each other. So they kind of thought the idea of teaching dolphins English and them ending up sitting at the UN in a suit with a briefcase was, like, (laughs) probably a bit (laughs) far-fetched. But they were like, look, he can learn about how they communicate with each other and that will go a long way towards teaching us how Mm. aliens communicate with each other. But again... This is a guy who wrote about dolphins ending up at the UN and going for coffee with the delegate from Yemen. So, like, he's not really interested in NASA's sensible approach to his research. So he took all their money. He's like, yep, totally, I'll do that thing you say. And then he just devoted all his time to teaching dolphins to speak English. (laughs) Now, he did this by building the Dolphinarium, which was called Dolphin House, and it was actually pretty cool. It was right on the beach And it was sort of built into this cliff face and the dolphins were on the lower level, which was kind of like this open ocean pool. Um, So like when the the tides came in and went out, that would sort of clean out the water and keep everything fresh and salt water and lovely for the dolphins in this pool. And then the next level up was sort of the laboratory where the humans were and would study these dolphins and that's when Margaret showed up. Mm-hmm. So she had no experience, no history in science. She was 21. She just seemed really, really, really interested in the dolphins.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Dr. Lilly and the lab director, Greg, were like, okay, you can just come in as an unpaid volunteer. Like, whatevs, <laughs> weirdo. So there's an amazing documentary. <laughs> There's an amazing documentary from 2014 about this called The Girl Who Talked to Dolphins. And it's the only time Margaret has ever agreed to be interviewed about all of this. It was 50 years after it all happened and it is a wild ride watching an old lady talk about a long-lost love, let me tell you. (laughs) So she says when she got to Dolphin House, quote, there were three dolphins Pamela, Sissy, and Peter. <laughs> Peter was a young guy. He was sexually coming of age and a bit naughty.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. You thought you had hillbillies in your story. <laughs> All three dolphins had been bought, just this is an interesting aside, from the studio who had used them to film the show Flipper.
1: Oh. There hmm.
0: you go. Margaret immediately took a special liking to Peter. She liked being around him so much, in fact, that soon she didn't want to leave the lab at the end of the day. So she convinced Dr. Lily to not only let her live in the upper human floor of the Dolphinarium, but she convinced Dr. Lilly to flood the upper floor with three feet of water so Peter could live there with her. <laughs> Not Pamela and Sissy. She didn't want them upstairs. They had to stay down in the dolphin pool all the time. It was only Peter that Margaret wanted up in their special apartment.
1: The naughty boy.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Margaret reasoned that if she could live intensely with Peter for a year or so, she could teach him English the way uh, a child learns it, like just babies are around people all day, every day, hearing them talk, and Mm -hmm. then, you know, they just start talking themselves. So she kind of thought that immersive environment would teach Peter to talk. And Dr. Lily, who was pretty radical to begin with, and at this point had started just taking a lot of LSD and riding around on a Segway all day. (laughs) 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 I feel like this story is so nuts that the Segway doesn't even, like pack the same punch as usual. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Lily was pretty radical and he had started taking a lot of LSD. Um, And he was touring a lot, like raising money for the Dolphinarium. So he wasn't around there a lot. And so when she asked him, can we flood the upper floors and have Peter up there with me all the time? He was just like, yeah, that sounds amazing, babe. Do it. That's cool. (laughs) So he just let her do it. And Margaret and Peter start living on the top floor of the Dolphin House alone, together. Mm. Now, watching the documentary, she insists she was making so much progress. Like, that... She says Peter could understand letters and words and was saying them to her, but when you watch it, you're like, he is legit just making dolphin noises. Like, she says things like, oh, my God, he struggles so much with the letter M. Like, he's really trying, and then they cut to him, and he's like, ah, and she's like, see? He's so close. He's nearly doing it. He's so close to saying Margaret. He just needs to get the letter M.
2: Oh, my <laughs>
0: She insists that to say the letter M so that he can say her name, he's going underwater and blowing bubbles. And that's him, say, that's him saying Margaret. That's uh, what she says. Uh, so it's around this time that the two of them, according to the vet who had come in to check on the dolphins, start to fall in love. She says of that time, she says this in the documentary that you really must watch. The girl who talks to dolphins, she says all of this to the camera. She's not ashamed. (laughs) She says, there's moonlight reflecting on the water. This fin and this bright eye is looking at you. And I thought, everyone else my age is out to dinner having fun. Why am I here? But then you get back into it and it never occurred to me not to do it. What I was doing there was trying to find out what Peter was doing there and what we could do. Together. (laughs) And everyone else was now only working downstairs with the girl dolphins. So Margaret and Peter were alone upstairs all the time. And this is when things started to get sexual. So like Margaret had pointed out, Peter was a young male, sexually in his prime. She says, he was very interested in my anatomy, Peter liked to be with me. He would rub himself on my knee or my foot or my hand. And at first I would put him downstairs with the girls because when he started to get a bit amorous, she'd be like, down to the girls, you go to do your business. Mm -hmm. But then she was like, oh, that's a whole chore because I've got to get him into the elevator thingy and put him down and then then I have to get him back in the elevator and bring him back up and it's a whole to-do. So then she said, eventually I just started to... Jerk him off. (laughs) She called it relieving him manually. (laughs) (laughs) Of these sexual encounters, Margaret says, it was very precious. I allowed it. I wasn't uncomfortable with it as long as it wasn't rough. And then, sensing that the interviewer in this documentary is looking at her like that, (laughs) she quickly goes, oh, no, no, it wasn't sexual on my part. But then she looks away and goes, it was sensual, though. (laughs) Miss you guys. Oh! Okay. She needed the book of days. Yeah, she did. She needed a friend to tell her <laughs> no. She did. Okay, so. <laughs> Margaret's living with Peter in their love nest. Sorry, laboratory, laboratory. <laughs> for six months. And then NASA is like, oh, hey, we're sending someone to see how the research is going. And interestingly, just as another weird aside fact, um, they sent Carl Sagan, who worked for NASA at the time, a very famous scientist and astronomer, Um, and he turns up and he's like,
2: Dr. Lilly's on
0: LSD and this chick is shacked up with a dolphin in a private apartment upstairs. You're meant to be researching how dolphins interact with each other and instead you've got a 23-year-old woman jerking one off, (laughs) insisting that he's saying her name whenever he blows bubbles. Shut it down. NASA shuts the whole thing down. Pamela, Sissy and Peter get sent to live at another facility that Dr Lily owns in Miami and Dolphin House, the Dolphinarium, Mm. is closed. Margaret is heartbroken that she can't keep Peter. She says in this interview from 2014, he wasn't mine, I couldn't keep him. We couldn't elope, you know. (laughs) We couldn't just rush off into the sea and disappear and hide. Now, I
1: wish they'd tried. Now,
0: now I know you're all thinking about the same question. Once you go dolphin, (laughs) can you go back? The answer is yes, but not that far. Margaret married the photographer who took all the photos of her and Peter together, and then she and this man lived in the dolphin house for 10 years. <laughs> they turned it into a house and had three children because Margaret didn't want to be too far from the memories of Peter. Oh. She says, it was a good house. There were good feelings there. I'm a human. I'm in love with a human. I married a human. I had babies. I also did have a very close encounter with... And then she stops herself and says, I can't even say dolphin. I had a close encounter with Peter. His name was Peter. With one dolphin. And then she looks into the camera and says, I was very, very lucky. (laughs) And that... (gasps) is just the gist oh. of Margaret Howe it, the woman who fell in love and had close encounters with a dolphin.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Oh,
0: wow. Oh,
2: wow.
0: And we like to go out with a bang, so that's it for our show. We're leaving you right there. Thank you, guys.